Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody Some dies. come back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? Back, you tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? you tried How do the dead come back, Mother? The Magic Shop by H.G. Wells I had seen the magic shop from afar several times. I had passed it once or twice, a shop window of alluring little objects, magic balls, magic hens, wonderful cones, ventriloquist dolls, the material of the basket trick, packs of cards that looked all right, and all that sort of thing. But never had I thought of going in until one day, almost without warning, Jip hauled me by my finger right up to the window and so conducted himself that there was nothing for it but to take him in. I had not thought the place was there, to tell the truth. A modest-sized frontage in Regent Street, between the picture shop and the place where the chicks run about just out of patent incubators. But there it was, sure enough. I had fancied it was down nearer the circus, or round the corner in Oxford Street, or even in Holborn, always over the way, and a little inaccessible it had been, with something of a mirage in its position. But here it was now quite indisputably, and the fat end of Jip's pointing finger made a noise upon the glass. "'If I was rich,' said Jip, dabbing a finger at the disappearing egg, "'I'd buy myself that, and that,' which was the crying baby, very human, "'and that, which was a mystery, and called, so a neat card asserted, "'buy one, and astonish your friends.' "'Anything,' said Jip, "'will disappear under one of those cones. "'I've read about it in a book. "'And there, Dada, is the vanishing halfpenny. "'Only they've put it this way "'so as we can't see how it's done.' "'Jip, dear boy, inherits his mother's breeding, "'and he did not propose to enter the shop "'or worry in any way. "'Only, you know, quite unconsciously, "'he lugged my finger doorward, "'and he made his interest clear. "'That,' he said, and pointed to the magic bottle. "'If you had that,' I said, at which promising inquiry he looked up with a sudden radiance. "'I could show it to Jessie,' he said, thoughtful as ever of others. "'It's less than a hundred days to your birthday, Jibbles,' I said, and laid my hand on the door-handle. Jip made no answer, but his grip tightened on my finger, and so we came into the shop. It was no common shop, this. It was a magic shop and all the prancing precedence Jip would have taken in the matter of mere toys was wanting. He left the burden of the conversation to me. It was a little, narrow shop, not very well lit, and the doorbell pinged again with a plaintive note as we closed it behind us. For a moment or so, we were alone and could glance about us. There was a tiger in papier-mâché on the glass case that covered the low counter, a grave, kind-eyed tiger, that waggled his head in a methodical manner. There were several crystal spheres, a china hand holding magic cards, a stock of magic fishbowls in various sizes, and an immodest magic hat that shamelessly displayed its springs. On the floor were magic mirrors, one to draw you out long and thin, one to swell your head and vanish your legs, and one to make you short and fat like a draught. And while we were laughing at these, the shopman, as I suppose, came in. At any rate, there he was behind the counter, a curious, sallow, dark man with one ear larger than the other and a chin like the toe-cap of a boot. "'What can we have the pleasure?' he said, spreading his long magic fingers on the glass case. And so, with a start, we were aware of him. "'I want,' I said, "'to buy my little boy a few simple tricks.' "'Legerdemain?' he asked. "'Mechanical? Domestic?' 
"'Anything amusing?' said I. "'Hmm,' said the shopman, and scratched his head for a moment, as if thinking. Then, quite distinctly, he drew from his head a glass ball. "'Something this way,' he said, and held it out. The action was unexpected. I'd seen the trick done at entertainments endless times before. It's part of the common stock of conjurers. But I had not expected it here. That's good, I said with a laugh. Isn't it? said the shopman. Jip stretched out his disengaged hand to take this object and found merely a blank palm. It's in your pocket, said the shopman. And there it was. How much will that be? I asked. We make no charge for glass balls, said the shopman politely. We get them, he picked one out of his elbow as he spoke, free. He produced another from the back of his neck and laid it beside its predecessor on the counter. Jip regarded his glass balls sagely, then directed a look of inquiry at the two on the counter and finally brought his round-eyed scrutiny to the shopman, who smiled. You may have those too, said the shopman, and if you don't mind... One from my mouth. So. Jip counselled me mutely for a moment, and then, in a profound silence, put away the four balls, resumed my reassuring finger, and nerved himself for the next event. We get all our smaller tricks in that way, the shopman remarked. I laughed in the manner of one who subscribes to a jest. Instead of going to the wholesale shop, I said, of course, it's cheaper. In a way, the shopman said, though we pay in the end, but not so heavily as people suppose. Our larger tricks and our daily provisions and all the other things we want, we get out of that hat. And you know, sir, if you'll excuse my saying it, there isn't a wholesale shop. Not for genuine magic, good sir. I don't know if you noticed our inscription, the genuine magic shop. He drew a business card from his cheek and handed it to me. Genuine, he said with his finger on the word, and added, There is absolutely no deception, sir. He seemed to be carrying out the joke pretty thoroughly, I thought. He turned to Jip with a smile of remarkable affability. You, you know, are the right sort of boy. I was surprised at his knowing that, because, in the interests of discipline, we keep it rather a secret, even at home. But Jip received it in unflinching silence, keeping a steadfast eye on him. It's only the right sort of boy gets through that doorway. And, as if by way of illustration, there came a rattling at the door, and a squeaking little voice could be faintly heard, No, I want to go in there, Dad, I want to go in there, yeah. And then, the accents of a downtrodden parent urging consolations and propitiations. It's, it's locked, Edward, he said. But it isn't, said I. It is, sir, said the shopman. Always. For that sort of child. And as he spoke, we had a glimpse of the other youngster, a little white face pallid from sweet-eating and over-sapid food and distorted by evil passions, a ruthless little egotist pawing at the enchanted pain. "'It's no good, sir,' said the shopman as I moved with my natural helpfulness doorward, and presently the spoilt child was carried off howling. "'How do you manage that?' I said, breathing a little more freely. Magic, said the shopman, with a careless wave of the hand, and behold, sparks of coloured fire flew out of his fingers and vanished into the shadows of the shop. You were saying, he said, addressing himself to Jip, before you came in, that you would like one of our buy one and astonish your friends boxes. 
Jip, after a gallant effort, said, Yes, it's in your pocket. And leaning over the counter, he really had an extraordinarily long body. This amazing person produced the article in the customary conjurer's manner. Paper, he said, and took out a sheet of the empty hat with the springs. String, and behold, his mouth was a string box from which he drew an unending thread, which when he had tied his parcel, he bit off, and, it seemed to me, swallowed the bull of string. And then he lit a candle at the nose of one of the ventriloquist dummies, stuck one of his fingers, which had become sealing wax red, into the flame, and so sealed the parcel. Then there was the um, disappearing egg, he remarked, and produced one from within my coat breast and packed it, and also the crying baby, very human. I handed each parcel to Jip as it was ready, and he clasped them to his chest. He said very little, but his eyes were eloquent. The clutch of his arms was eloquent. He was the playground of unspeakable emotions. These, you know, were real magics. Then, with a start, I discovered something moving about in my hat, something soft and jumpy. I whipped it off, and a ruffled pigeon, no doubt a confederate, dropped out and ran on the counter and went, I fancy, into the cardboard box behind the papier-mâché tiger. Tut, tut, said the shopman, dexterously relieving me of my headdress. Careless bird. And as I live, nesting. He shook my hat and shook out into his extended hand two or three eggs, a large marble, a watch, about half a dozen of the inevitable glass bowls, and then crumpled, crinkled paper, more and more and more, talking all the time of the way in which people neglect to brush their hats inside as well as out, politely, of course, but with a certain personal application. All sorts of things accumulate, sir. Not you, of course, in particular. Nearly every customer. Astonishing what they carry about with them. The crumpled paper rose and billowed on the counter more and more and more, until he was nearly hidden from us, until he was altogether hidden, and still his voice went on and on. We none of us know what the fair semblance of a human being may conceal, sir. Are we all then no better than brushed exteriors, whited sepulchres? His voice stopped, exactly like when you hit a neighbour's gramophone with a well-aimed brick. The same instant silence. And the rustle of paper stopped, and everything was still. Uh, have you done with my hat? I asked, after an interval and there was no answer. I stared at Jip, and Jip stared at me, and there were our distortions in the magic mirrors looking very rum and grave and quiet. I think we'll go now, I said. Would you tell me how much all this comes to? I say, I said on a rather louder note, I want the bill and my hat, please. It might have been a sniff from behind the paper pile, Let's look behind the counter, Jip, I said. He's making fun of us. I led Jip round the head-wagging tiger. And what do you think there was behind the counter? No one at all. Only my hat on the floor and a common conjurer's lop-eared white rabbit lost in meditation and looking as stupid and crumpled as only a conjurer's rabbit can do. I resumed my hat and the rabbit lolloped a lollop or so out of my way. Dada, said Jip in a guilty whisper. What is it, Jip? said I. I do like this shop, Dada. So should I, I said to myself. If the counter wouldn't suddenly extend itself to shut one off from the door. But I didn't call Jip's attention to that. 
Pussy, he said, with a hand out to the rabbit as it came lolloping past us. Pussy, do jipper magic. And his eyes followed it as it squeezed through a door I had certainly not remarked a moment before. Then this door opened wider, and the man with one ear larger than the other appeared again. He was smiling still, but his eye met mine with something between amusement and defiance. "'You'd like to see our showroom, sir,' he said with an innocent suavity. Jip tugged my finger forward. I glanced at the counter and met the shopman's eye again. I was beginning to think the magic just a little too genuine. "'We haven't very much time,' I said, but somehow we were inside the showroom before I could finish that. "'All goods of the same quality,' said the shopman, rubbing his flexible hands together. "'And that is the best.' Nothing in the place that isn't genuine magic and warranted thoroughly rum. Excuse me, sir. I felt him pull at something that clung to my coat sleeve, and then I saw he held a little wriggling red demon by the tail. The little creature bit and fought and tried to get at his hand, and in a moment he tossed it carelessly behind the counter. No doubt the thing was only an image of twisted India rubber, but for that moment... And his gesture was exactly that of a man who handles some petty, biting bit of vermin. I glanced at Jip, but Jip was looking at a magic rocking horse. I was glad he hadn't seen the thing. I say, I said in an undertone and indicating Jip and the red demon with my eyes, you haven't many things like that about, have you? None of ours. Probably brought it with you, said the shopman, also in an undertone, and with a more dazzling smile than ever. "'Astonishing what people will carry around with them unawares.' "'And then to Jip, "'Do you see anything you fancy in here?' "'There were many things that Jip fancied there. "'He turned to this astonishing tradesman "'with mingled confidence and respect. "'Is that a magic sword?' he said. "'A magic toy sword. "'It neither bends, breaks, nor cuts fingers. "'It renders the bearer invincible in battle "'against anyone under eighteen. Half a crown to seven sixpence, according to size. These uh, panoplies on cards are for juvenile knights errant and very useful. Shield of safety, sandals of swiftness, helmet of invisibility. Oh, daddy, gasped Jip. I tried to find out what they cost, but the shopman didn't heed me. He had got Jip now. He had got him away from my finger. He had embarked upon the exposition of all his confounded stock and nothing was going to stop him. Presently, I saw, with a qualm of distrust and something very like jealousy, that Jip had hold of this person's finger, as usually he has hold of mine. No doubt the fellow was interesting, I thought, and had an interestingly faked lot of stuff, really good faked stuff. Still, I wandered after them, saying very little, but keeping an eye on this prestator digital fellow. After all, Jip was enjoying it and no doubt when the time came to go we should be able to go quite easily. It was a long, rambling place, that showroom, a gallery broken up by stands and stalls and pillars, with archways leading off to other departments, in which the queerest-looking assistants loafed and stared at one, and with perplexing mirrors and curtains. So perplexing indeed were these that I was presently unable to make out the door by which we had come. The shopman showed Jip magic trains that ran without steam or clockwork, just as you set the signals, and then some very, very valuable boxes of soldiers that all came alive directly you took off the lid and said, I myself haven't a very quick ear, and it was a tongue-twisting sound, but Jip 
He, as his mother's ear, got it in no time. Bravo, said the shopman, putting the men back into the box unceremoniously and handing it to Jip. Now, said the shopman, and in a moment Jip had made them all alive again. You'll take that box? asked the shopman. We'll take that box, said I, unless you charge its full value, in which case I would need a trust magnate. Dear heart, no, and the shopman swept the little men back again, shut the lid, waved the box in the air, and there it was in brown paper tied up and with Jip's full name and address on the paper. The shopman laughed at my amazement. This is genuine magic, he said. The real thing. It's a little too genuine for my taste, I said again. After that he fell to showing Jip tricks, odd tricks, and still odder the way they were done. He explained them, he turned them inside out, and there was the dear little chap nodding his busy bit of a head in the sagest manner. I didn't attend as well as I might. Hey, presto, said the magic shopman, and then would come the clear small, hey, presto, of the boy. But I was distracted by other things. It was being borne in upon me just how tremendously rum this place was. It was, so to speak, inundated by a sense of rumness. There was something a little rum about the fixtures even, about the ceiling, about the floor, about the casually distributed chairs. I had a queer feeling that whenever I wasn't looking at them straight, they went askew and moved about and played a noiseless puss in the corner behind my back. And the cornice had a serpentine design with masks. Masks altogether too expressive for proper plaster. Then, abruptly, my attention was caught by one of the odd-looking assistants. He was some way off, and evidently unaware of my presence. I saw a sort of three-quarter length of him over a pile of toys and through an arch, and you know, he was leaning against a pillar in an idle sort of way, doing the most horrid things with his features. The particular horrid thing he did was with his nose. He did it just as though he was idle and wanted to amuse himself, First of all, it was a short, blobby nose, and then, suddenly, he shot it out like a telescope. And then out it flew and became thinner and thinner until it was a long, red, flexible whip. Like a thing in a nightmare, it was. He flourished it about and flung it forth as a fly-fisher flings his line. My instant thought was that Jip mustn't see him. I turned around, and there was Jip, quite preoccupied with the shopman and thinking no evil. They were whispering together and looking at me. Jip was standing on a little stool, and the shopman was holding a sort of big drum in his hand. "'Hide and seek, Dada!' cried Jip. "'You're he!' And before I could do anything to prevent it, the shopman had clapped the big drum over him. I saw what was up directly. "'Take that off!' I cried. "'This instant you'll frighten the boy. Take it off!' The shopman, with the unequal ears, did so, without a word, and held the big cylinder towards me to show its emptiness. And the little stool was vacant. In that instant my boy had utterly disappeared. You know, perhaps, that sinister something that comes like a hand out of the unseen and grips your heart about. You know it takes your common self away and leaves you tense and deliberate, neither slow nor hasty, neither angry nor afraid. So it was with me. I came up to this grinning shopman and kicked his stool aside. Stop this folly, I said. Where's my boy? You see, he said, still displaying the drum's interior, there is no deception. I put out my hand to grip him, and he eluded me by a dexterous movement. I snatched again, and he turned from me, 
and pushed open a door to escape. Stop, I said, and he laughed, receding. I leapt after him into utter darkness. Thud. Lord bless me, I didn't see you coming, sir. I was in Regent Street, and I had collided with a decent-looking working man, and a yard away, perhaps, and looking a little perplexed with himself, was Jip. There was some sort of apology, and then Jip had turned and come to me with a bright little smile, as though for a moment he had missed me, and he was carrying four parcels in his arm. He secured immediate possession of my finger. For the second I was rather at a loss. I stared round to see the door of the magic shop, and behold, it was not there. There was no door, no shop, nothing. Only the common pilaster between the shop where they sell the pictures and the window with the chicks. I did the only thing possible in that mental tumult. I walked straight to the curbstone and held up my umbrella for a cab. Ansem, said Jip in a note of culminating exultation. I helped him in, recalled my address with an effort, and got in also. Something unusual proclaimed itself in my tailcoat pocket, and I felt and discovered a glass ball. With a petulant expression, I flung it into the street. Jip said nothing. For a space, neither of us spoke. Dada, said Jip at last, that was a proper shop. I came round with that to the problem of just how the whole thing had seemed to him. He looked completely undamaged. So far, so good. He was neither scared nor unhinged. He was simply tremendously satisfied with the afternoon's entertainment, and there in his arms were the four parcels. Confounded, what could be in them? Hmm, I said, little boys can't go to shops like that every day. He received this with his usual stoicism, and for a moment I was sorry I was his father and not his mother, and so couldn't suddenly there, corum publico, in our hansom, kiss him. After all, I thought, the thing wasn't so very bad. But it was only when we opened the parcels that I really began to be reassured. Three of them contained boxes of soldiers, quite ordinary lead soldiers, but of so good a quality as to make Jip altogether forget that originally these parcels had been magic tricks of the only genuine sort. And the fourth contained a kitten, a little living white kitten, in excellent health and appetite and temper. I saw this unpacking with a sort of provisional relief. I hung about in the nursery for quite an unconscionable time. That happened six months ago, and now I am beginning to believe it is all right. The kitten had only the magic natural to all kittens, and the soldiers seemed as steady a company as any colonel could desire. And Jip? The intelligent parent will understand that I have to go cautiously with Jip. But I went so far as this one day, I said, How would you like your soldiers to come alive, Jip, and uh, march about by themselves? Mine do, said Jip. I just have to say a word I know before I open the lid. Then they march about alone. Oh, quite, Dada. I shouldn't like them if they didn't do that. I displayed no unbecoming surprise, and since then I have taken occasion to drop in upon him once or twice unannounced when the soldiers were about, but so far I have never discovered them performing in anything like a magical manner. It's so difficult to tell. There's also a question of finance. I have an incurable habit of paying bills. I've been up and down Regent Street several times looking for that shop. I'm inclined to think, indeed, that in that matter honour is satisfied, and that since Jip's name and address are known to them, I may very well leave it to these people, whoever they may be, 
to send in their bill in their own time. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody so come back. That was a magic shop by H.G. Wells. This is the second Wells story we've done. The previous one was the, uh, the door in the wall. I was going to say the hole in the wall, but that was a pub I spent too many hours in near Waterloo Station in my 20s with Nick Doyle uh, and others. Um, anyway, so enough of that. The door in the wall is a wistful story. This is not this story. This is the to magic toy shop. And it's about a man who is given a vision of a, a wonderful world, a magical world. And he is um, too preoccupied with his life to take up the opportunity to enter that magic world. And then finally, possibly at his death, he does. Uh, so it is in many ways a similar kind of theme, I think, to the magic shop. I was going to do, say something about um, Wells first, but I've entered into this. So what we see with the magic shop, not to also to be confused with the magic toy shop by Angela Carter, all these similar titles confuse me, but this is a magic shop at H.G. Wells. And what we've got is a, a certain type of person who is basically pure of, pure of heart, and this is the child who is pure of heart. Not all children are pure at heart. Some are spoiled and greedy and demanding, such as the kid who can't get in, if you remember the spoiled child who isn't allowed in. Sort of Willy Wonka-ish, though, isn't it? Um, but Jip, who is the pure-hearted picture of innocence is allowed in. His father is a good man, who is Dada, is um, not named, but we, we presume it's Wells himself. He's basically a, a nice man, a, a decent-hearted fellow, but he's a worldly man. He knows how to pay bills. He goes to work. He has... He's not totally credulous, so he goes in and he thinks it's a big... Uh, put on a bit joke for the kids, and he plays along with the joke, and then he becomes increasingly concerned perhaps not quite as concerned as I would be if these things were happening but uh, but let's go with the story and um and then the the stuff that comes out of his hat and the little demon and the shopman is quite quite clear that our dada Jip's father has brought these with him and I guess we're to understand these as the um disfigurements and poisons of everyday life that we inevitably all pick up trying to live our lives. You know, we can't all be pure heart little lambs. We have to go through the world and uh, all that means and, and be um, wise as serpents as well as gentle as doves, um, if you can manage that really. But so I think, uh, you know, that, but inevitably does pick up. And, and there is the assistant. I don't know what the assistant is. The assistant's vaguely demonic. At one point I thought what was going to happen. Well, I didn't. But, you know, what could have happened was that the story, if it was a horror story, this would, they would have been monsters, wouldn't they? Um, but it isn't a horror story, it is a supernatural story. So it, thus it's included. And also we're getting near to Christmas 2022. We're in, I'm recording this sort of middle of November. You may hear it back end of November, early December 2022. So I thought we'd kind of have toy shops and things like that and a bit of magic in our lives for that season. Um, Yes, so I think that's it in simplicity, really, that the boy's simplicity allows him to see a world of magic. And of course, this isn't a, an original thought. This Even Wordsworth talks about things like this, doesn't he? You know, how the child sees things at the... Um, I'm, I'm, I, did, I did a reading of the Prelude, which is on the Classic Poetry Channel. But um, yeah, that's the, the gist of it, really. The children, because they're innocent, 
see things and are open to the magic of the world. And I think our own experiences, certainly mine, is that um, my early life was full of wonder. I remember looking at um, sunlight in a, a little stream on the beach across the sand, the ripples of sunlight and the sparkles of a Christmas tree and oil, the rainbow colours of oil in a puddle, and just being entranced by them. And even as a teenager looking up at the mountains near where I live and being just blown away by them. And that, that, and that, that grew less, has grown less as I've got older, which is a great pity. I hope I haven't lost all of it. And this is why I read these stories out to you to recapture a little bit of that. Um, but yeah, we lose the wonder. So is, is the shop man evil? No, I don't think he is. I thought if you to, I thought at one point it was going to be like a trickster figure. You know, a lot of societies like Loki for the Norse, I think it's Coyote. Or maybe, you know, these aren't my cultural backgrounds. Norse, 2% Scandinavian apparently on DNA, but 98% not. And uh, so I'm not Native American, but I mean, I believe Coyote and um, sort of a monkey in, in some Chinese legends as well. And we do have a trickster figure who plays tricks and it's his job to play. And Mercury in Roman world um, it's not to be, Odin as well. They're not to be trusted, and they have a bit of fun with us. And I sometimes think that fate does that. So there we are. Yeah, and a, a simple story, very nice story. I, is there more to be drawn out of it? I don't really know. Let's say something about H. G. Wells. So Herbert George Wells, known as Bertie to his family, was born in 1866 at Atlas House in Bromley in Kent. I used to live near there, not in Bromley. I couldn't afford it. But I, I, I used to go to Bromley, I liked it. Um, and then he died age 79 in his much, you know, much higher class home uh, at a 13 Hanover Terrace looking over Regent's Park. And that was due to his great success. Of course, he is the guy who wrote The War of the Worlds, um, History of Mr. Polly, The Time Machine, and loads of others as well. He was a very prolific writer. Um, a science fiction, Brian Aldiss called him the father of science fiction, or the Shakespeare of science fiction, in fact. And he has a great, a great imagination, I think, Wells. Um, he, he didn't come from a particularly wealthy background. His father was a professional cricketer for Kent. So he's got a lot of Kentish connections here. Um, he lived most of his life at different places around Kent, county of Kent. And um, his father earned his money as a professional cricketer and then uh, had an injury and couldn't be a cricketer anymore. Uh, they had some kind of shop in London and... It didn't do very well. I don't know if it was a junk shop, but they were on a hard time, so they had to put him out as an apprentice drape. And so Wells earned his living, and then it started him off as a teacher, which of course is slightly higher social status, really, than being a draper. Well, you could argue about that. I don't want to offend drapers. Um, drapers do a good job. Um, I've never met one, but, um, but you know, we don't have them anymore, do we? do we? I believe when I was doing my ancestry, one of my great-great-uncles was a draper at the co-op. But anyway, enough of that. So, yeah, he, he came up the hard way and he had to earn his living and he started to write eventually and uh, he uh, started to make money at it and did really well, as we know. Now, he was... This is a thing... We have a book club, the classic ghost stories book club. Last night we discussed The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman and many other things. You can imagine the story. The uh, discussion devolves into various thoughts of some really smart people. I learn a lot from them, actually. Um, I think, oh, right, yeah. Mm. 
No, true, true, true. Anyway, so yeah, join, join. Why not? Um, I, I, it, you'll be able to find the link somewhere. I can't tell you. It's one of those that goes A G B B X Y three. I can't remember it. So, um, but the, it's such a thing exists, and we discuss every uh, to every two weeks, every fortnight. So, um, where was I? Oh, we were talking about this issue about and this this crops up, of course. There, there are when you're reading a story, particularly an old story. Fashions change, times change, and the views that are expressed in those stories may not sit comfortably with certain people in the audience. H.G. Wells, he was a socialist of the Fabian Society, which is on the left wing of the Labour Party. And you can see he's come from not a moneyed background. And it's, I often think, you know, your, your politics are often derived from your upbringing. So if you're the lord of such and such, you're probably going to be conservative because you're going to keep what you've got. And if you're... Um, you know, come from a really poor background, you've got nothing and all you know is poverty, you're going to think, well, people should actually, society's unfair, we, we need to change this. Um, so, and the same way as if you're born in Sri Lanka, you know, in Sinhalese, you're probably going to be a Buddhist. If you're born in Italy, you're probably going to be a Catholic. If you're born in Iran, you're probably going to be a Shiite Muslim, you know, and, and people treat these things like they, they've decided, I'm decided to become a conservative. No, you don't. I think you are... It's from where you come from. So Wells had made money, but had come from a poor background. So And like, like Dickens, in fact, the same kind of social reform issues a generation or so earlier, because they came from poor backgrounds. And somebody like Lord Dunsany, who I love, is probably not going to be that interested. You can't say never, but, uh, but probably not. It's just the way the world is. He wasn't a communist. He, was, uh, he went to Russia and he thought it was okay in the 20s. This is the time of Stalin, right? And he, saw, he thought it was recovering, but he, he, wasn't, he wasn't completely uncritical. He was quite critical. And he wanted to go back and talk to Stalin and, and let Stalin see the error of Stalin's ways by debate. I mean, you know, really, uh, you can see he's a bit of an idealist there. And he was an idealist. He was a, a forward thinker. And, and his views about religion changed as well. At one point, he was very Christian. And by the end, he was against all organised religion, though not specifically against the spirit of Christianity. But he was a serial adulterer. And many of the women he had affairs with had miscarriages, became pregnant. And he just kept on doing it, even when he was married. This is basically from the wiki. It says, Wells had affairs with a lot of women. Dorothy Richardson was a friend and he had, and he had a short affair with her in 1907. This led to a pregnancy, which ended in a miscarriage. Wells was married to Richardson's old school friend at the time. Mm, that won't go down well at parties. In December 1909, he had a daughter named Anna Jane with the writer Amber Reeves through the Fabian Society met Amber's parents. He then had um, Elizabeth von Arnhem, who's a great writer. She was one of his mistresses. In 1914, he had a son with Rebecca West, a novelist and feminist who was 26 uh, years younger than him. And then he was in love with the American birth control activist Margaret Sanger from 1920 to 1921 and off until he died. And in his autobiography, it's a great line, he says, um, an experiment in autobiography published in 1934. So he hadn't even finished his affairs by then, he was still conducting them. But when he wrote this, he said, I was never a great romantic, but I loved a few people very much. There you go. So that makes it okay then. Discuss. Yeah, some people are going to be outraged. I'm never going to read anything by H.G. Wells again. I think my view on it is, oh, you know, we talked about this Seneca. There were slave owners. Am I never going to read their book, Marcus Aurelius, who was an emperor, probably had people put to death. 
I'm never going to read anything by him, you know. Some of the Desert Fathers may have had some unpleasant views about certain things. We just don't know. There was always that thing about sport, wasn't there? And having sporting affairs. I've got affairs on the brain. I'm not having an affair. I've just got them on the brain. So uh, sporting events in countries that, you know, back in the day, back in South Africa, and we weren't going to do that. And in Russia and China. and um, But we've got them in Qatar, of course, because that's a, a bastion of democracy and fairness and equality and free speech and free everything. It just shows you what money will get you, doesn't it? No, not that I think that FIFA is corrupt. But, oh, yeah, I do. Yeah, there we are. So, okay. So, yeah, people will go, well, we should keep politics out of sport. And then in my y younger years, I'd be like, no, 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 it's important. And now kind of I'm saying, well, these authors may or may not have had views which I don't agree with, Algernon and Blackwood. I mean, all of them, really. There's probably one or two I could sit down with and we'd see eye to eye, but on, on, with many of the others. I wouldn't. So do I not read them? Uh, and my conclusion is, yeah, I'm going to read them because, because of the story, as the story. Look, Robin Hood, great story, probably not composed by one person, but let's say it was, or um, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. I've done a version of that in Middle English. Oh, it's not Middle English completely, but it's a, an old-fashioned English. You want to listen to that? That's a good Christmas story. It's long, though, and hard to understand, but I try my best to make it uh, comprehensible. But, you know, what if he's a wife beater? Uh, is that okay? No, it's not okay. What if he's an alcoholic? Do we disapprove of that? Well, you know, probably less so. What if he, um, etc., etc., etc. So there we are. That's my decision. Uh, things here continue. I'm working like a dog. Don't get on about, oh, Tony mustn't like dogs then. No, I love dogs. But it's just a saying. Um, it doesn't mean anything bad to dogs. Don't be offended. I don't know any dogs who work hard. Shay doesn't work hard. She just dosses about and gets fed and has a tummy tickled. That's not hard work. Anyway, so, but the saying is, a, or a Trojan. My nana used to say that. You work like a Trojan. No offence to any Trojans. There are no Trojans left. I've been to Troy. It's just a heap of rocks now. Uh, so there's no Trojans can be offended by that one. Few. So I've been working like because I've decided I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing this podcast and then I'm um, doing another one called Haunted Places, which is kind of true supernatural stories, so-called true ghost stories, different angle, actually pretty different material, but I'm always being interested in that kind of thing. So that exists. I don't know if you can YouTube it, Haunted Places, Tony Walker, you should get it. It's on YouTube. It's not as a podcast. Um, that's too much work for too little return. And... Then the other things I'm doing, I'm doing a couple of websites. I've got about, I've got the Ghost Pod website. I'm not doing a lot with that. I've got my Haunted Travel website, which is to complement the haunted places, which is supposed to set out and places you can go and visit and stay in that are haunted. Uh, but that's huge, huge piece of work. And then I've got one that's actually linked to my mental health work called Mood Meds. And when I look at, say something about my experience of prescribing, but uh, what, what I think about the different medications, and I'm a big therapy person, but I, I, do, I do feel that medication has their place. Also, herbal supplements, are they any good? I mean, I take vitamins. Uh, I, I always take two grams of vitamin C every day for years. It explains my youthful good looks. And, um, what else do I take? Oh, a bit of K2. Sounds like a mountain. Uh, it is like swallowing a mountain. No, it isn't. It's only a small capsule. So anyway, yeah, I talk about those. And we talk about 
herbal stuff, ashwagandha. You know, my partner Sheila is very into herbal stuff that we can, that she particularly gets off the hedgerows and bushes and things and then makes into tea and jelly and all sorts. So, yeah, I'm interested in all of those those things. Did I tell you about my CBD oil experience if I haven't? When we were going, I got in some in Glastonbury, I may have said that, and that helps me sleep. So, you know, moodmeds.co.uk. You probably won't find it. it's too 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 new. Anyway, these are supposed to provide income for me at some point in the future when they get built. It's a tremendous amount of work. I'm trying to record podcasts for the Christmas season. I've got a few. I'm, I, I probably will do Charles Dickens' The Christmas Tree, even though it's not a ghost story, but it's certainly a Christmas story. Uh, and, there, and I've got... The British Library has issued a series of collections of ghost stories from their from their archives because in the UK, if you pr- publish a book, you should send a copy of it to the British Library. I'm sure that isn't done as much now with Kindle and things, but certainly everybody used to do it. So they've got an archive of long forgotten ghost stories and they, they bring out themed anthologies, which look really good. Uh, I've got loads of them. I probably haven't read all of them actually, but I've, there are collections. I've got one called uh, Chill Tidings, which is uh, ghost stories of the Christmas season and Sunless Solstice, which is also around so 21st December and things like that. I've got the Horn God. I've got loads, and I keep looking at them to draw stories out. So I'm going to do some stories from those for Christmas to create a little bit of Christmas spirit. If I get round to it, I'm writing a, one of my own Christmas stories. Oh, but when will I find time? Got to find time, Tony. Also got to go and buy some food and things. Anyway, this is an inconsequential ramble, I feel, this time. Saying things I've already said before many times. I hope you're all well uh, and um, happy days. Let's look forward to Christmas. And finally, I just want to thank my patrons, all of you people who are joining up to be patrons to support my work directly. That's really fantastic. So you can, and there are a number of options. You can join the Substack mailing list. That's mainly free, but you get the members only stories if you, if you do the paid. Most of the paid, so it's all duplicated in Patreon, but they're not the same thing. So don't join both. And then Apple, have them up on Apple for subscribers as well. Extra stories on that. So there are three ways you can get extra stories for paid members. So I just want to thank everybody who joined up on Apple, who joined up on Patreon, who joined up on Substack, and also the members of my YouTube. That's the fourth way of the YouTube channel. People can join up for membership and you get these member stories, access to those. There's quite a few of them now, so it's probably worth doing. Uh, if you if you join... Um, the others, there is a, I think for Patreon, the lowest thing is a dollar, dollar, um, dollar a month. Dollar, it seems tremendously low. I need to put that price up if it is. Maybe a dollar a week, but I think it might be a dollar a month. Uh, and you get access to all the, you don't get the paid stuff on the dollar, but you get access to all the old stories. So there's a big, big, I mean, you know, there's hundreds of hours of stories that you get. And it's all ad free, of course. So you can just download them and at uh, your leisure. Anyway, that wasn't supposed to be a, um, a sales pitch, although not unuseful. But um, thank you to everybody who supports me in that way. I really do appreciate it. Music that's going to come up is by the Hartwood Institute. If you like kind of hauntological, doomy, electronic, experimental stuff, Jonathan Sharp at the Hartwood Institute, and I do. So I'm going to go and see him. He's got a solstice uh, concert. I'm defo going to be that. It's been cancelled twice because of COVID. So um, this is the first time after COVID. It's a no miss for me.